Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We'll be looking at Genesis 1, uh, or chapter 1, primarily just chapter 1, even though we'll talk briefly about chapter 2. We've been in a, in a bigger study of just knowing God, figuring out who God is and how the Scriptures reveal this God that we worship, what the Scriptures actually say about Him. Um, that has taken us into some uh, deeper dives into various topics along the way. So we talked about not only who God is, but then we had to kind of take a break and go, now what do some other religions say about God and how do we know that those things are false? So we talked briefly about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. They come to our door, they present to us a different God. And how do we know that the God that they present to us is not the God that's revealed to us in Scripture? And so our study in the knowledge of God has kind of taken us that route and we've said, Well, this is how we know that that's not the God that we believe in. We believe in a God that's triune, for instance, and they do not. And on and on we went through some of those. And then we get to kind of the end of uh, God the Father, where we, that sounded really bad, but you know what I'm saying. We got to the end of the section of our study on God the Father, who he is, and that led us into the created order, that he has created everything. And so what we then have have kind of dived into is three predominant views of creation that have been kind of more or less believed by many people in church history for the last 2,000 years, especially in regards to Genesis 1 and 2. The question that we've always got when we get to Genesis 1 and 2 is, what exactly is it communicating here and how is it communicating that? Is it telling us that the earth is 6,000 years old or is very young? Um, or is it telling us that, that the earth is very old? Or is it telling us what we're going to talk about tonight? Uh, not anything about that, but, but something else entirely. Um, so basically, it's kind of led us into this, uh, how do we understand Genesis 1 and 2? And how has that been understood throughout history? The, the, my, my, uh, I guess really the predominant focus of the things that I want to accomplish in, in diving through the scriptures in this way is really to help us lay hold of what has the church always believed? What have we always, always believed that have been unanimous in terms of church history? That Christians everywhere for the last 2,000 years have closed their fist around certain principles of a faith and will never let them go lest they not be Christian anymore. And so that's part of what we want to do is help kind of wrap our, wrap our fingers around those things and say, No matter what, you can't convince me that this is not true. But then I also want to kind of dive into what are some things that have been uh, widely debated for the last 2,000 years? And to be quite frank, no one has ever settled (laughs) for the last 2,000 years. And what that does, if you kind of imagine Orthodox Christianity as a backyard, then those Orthodox positions that I tend to call closed-handed theology, the, the things that we wrap our fingers around, those would be kind of like your fence around your backyard. And the things that have been widely debated for the last 2,000 years are the things that are inside the fence. And the point is that so long as people stay inside the fence, there's good debate to be had over the text of Scripture. It's when you get outside the fence that there's a tremendous problem. And so that can help us. You'll remember, you may remember that when we first started this study, the thing that I said was that I really wanted to do was 
put alarm bells in your brain so that when those wires are tripped, the bells kind of go off and you go, wait a second, I think that is outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And so we're kind of, we're, we're doing that and it's going to be a slow, long process that we do that, but um, that's kind of what we're hoping to do. Well, we get to the creation uh, story, Genesis 1 and 2. We talked at first, the first week, about creationism, uh, typically called young earth creationism, being that uh, 24-hour periods we're looking at here in days and, um, and that God created the world and everything in it, and then bam, goes right into creation, the created effort, um, days one through six, 24 literal hours, and some people come away with 6,000, the earth is 6,000 years old, some come away with maybe only slightly older than that, 10 to 20,000 years, Um, but that's what's typically called young earth creationism or just creationism, and then the the week week after that, we talked about progressive creationism being... (laughs) that the days that are listed there are really longer periods of time. They're like ages, and that the Lord creates, and it takes a while for those things to form, and then he goes to the next day and creates, and then it takes a while for those things to form. And that we talked about how the, the, one of the big issues in Genesis 1 in particular, Genesis 1 and 2, is the ambiguity of some Hebrew words. It's, sometimes it's very hard to determine the precise meaning. The most precise language I think that's ever existed in the history of mankind is is Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. Probably the least precise language in the entire history of mankind is uh, is Hebrew, is classic biblical Hebrew. It's so hard with that language to really um, interpret and read and translate correctly. And so because of that, it's sometimes hard to ascertain exactly what we have here. Um, but we, we also talked about, before all of that, there are some things that we've nailed down completely, that have been believed for the last 2,000 years, and nobody has f- deviated from at all. Namely, that God created the world out of nothing. There was, not, there was no material here, and he who has always existed spoke into uh, the abyss, let's call it that, of, into nothingness, and then there was something, right? And he created these things, uh, everything that we see, out of nothing, that he created man out of the ground. He created him in his image. So it rules out certain things that people would say, like evolutionary theory, that man can just pop out of the ground, you know, uh, by his, I don't know, evolutionary process or whatever. Um, It rules out really that kind of God-guided idea of evolution or even the unguided idea of evolution. Um, Tonight is going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to warn you um, that it might, some people might be a little uncomfortable with it. That's okay. We're going to dive into historic creationism. And this view was really made popular by uh, Dr. John Salehammer, who was a professor. His last position that I know of was a professor of Old Testament at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary out in, um, that's the city. Yep, somewhere in North Carolina. Wake Forest, thank you. Um, and so before that, he held several positions in, in different seminaries around the, the United States. Uh, he, he died last year, I think, so uh, you can't email him and, and gripe at him. Uh, he knows whatever the truth is, he knows it now. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but he wrote a book called Genesis Unbound, and uh, it is quite an interesting book, um, it's, um, and it, but it is a good bit different. 
So we're going to dive through historic creationism. Some of the points that he makes, I think, are really valid and very good and worth considering. And some of them you're going to see, um, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, but like any of you, uh, we're going to go through it. So historic creationism, obviously popularized by him, it's a, it's a form of creationism because it understands Genesis 1 and 2 to be a literal and realistic account of God's creation of the universe. This is the first thing that I, 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 you have to understand as we go through this. John Salehammer or anybody that would hold to the historic creation view, they're looking at the words of the scriptures. They're looking at the Hebrew text. Salehammer in particular is going through the biblical Hebrew and he's making an argument from the translation of the biblical text as to what it really means. Okay, so that's, that's tremendously important. Why is that important? Why is that important? To give scripture the authority. Yeah, right? Yeah, so the person that, if, if I'm going to take a view in and think about it and weigh it on its merits, it better take the words of the text seriously, right? Salehammer is doing that, but what he's going to offer is some, some different translations of some of the words that we're used to seeing very commonly written in, in the text. And uh, I think some of them, very valid points that he makes. So um, as we go through that, just remember that, that he is working with the Hebrew text itself. Um, it does hold that God created the universe out of nothing. That's very important. Um, it holds what we've always believed about the creation account. It holds that before global expansion, the promised land, the promised land was envisioned as the center of the inhabited world. Think about that for just a second. That what he's saying is before we had boats and you know, traveling all over the world, airplanes, cars, those kinds of things, for the person reading the Hebrew text, the, what we would call the promised land, the land of Canaan, that, that area that was given to the Jews, that was the epicenter of their reality. That was, that was the land in question. And so Sailhammer, his take on this is mainly that it centers around that area right there. So let's hold off on that. I'll get to it in a second. It also holds uh, a relatively agnostic position on the age of the earth. So Sailhammer is basically in his book would say, uh, is the earth 13.7 billion years old? Is it 6,000 years old? I don't know. Don't care. I don't think the text even mentions it. Basically, that's his, his kind of perspective on it. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember right in his book, he leans towards an old earth, um, that the earth is old. But the view he's going to lay out is pretty agnostic about it, doesn't really care. You could, be, you could hold young earth position or you could hold an old earth position and still hold his position on the text, all right? Um, okay, questions about that? So you're saying that Israel, like when they talk in Genesis 1 about land, it's the land Israel? Yeah, yeah, he, that, that's where he's gonna, yes, yes, yes. So we'll, we'll get to that, but yes. Um, so right here in this first section, Genesis 1, 
uh, 1 and 2. You'll remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Now, what he says is there's two uh, distinct time periods in the Genesis 1 account. All right? The first is in verse 1 1. The first time period is, is in verse 1 1. And it's a time period that's referred to there as uh, the beginning, okay? That time period, that's, that's one time period in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 1. The second is in verses 1, 2 and following, okay? So it's in this first time period that God created everything from nothing. So he says, Genesis 1, 1. God spoke and created everything from nothing right there in Genesis 1.1. That's it. Everything's there. Okay? Think about that for just a second. During the second period, so, so 1, 2 and following, God prepared the promised land to be, you have in, inhabitable there, it should be habitable. <laughs> prepared the promised land to be habitable for mankind. Everything one, two, and following is God preparing that, what we know as the promised land, the land of Canaan, all of that. He's preparing that land. That's what Genesis 1, 2, and following is all talking about and is all dealing with. Now, you can see why, why initially we'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> what? <laughs> I grant you, it is, it, it, it takes a second to go, I, I, I Formless and void, uh, like <laughs> darkness is over the face of the deep. Like, well, I, this that sounds strange to me. I get it, uh, but that's that's his argument. That's the argument he's making. The the support for that argument basically comes in the way he translates the, some of the Hebrew words that come in the rest of the chapter. Um, the word commonly translated earth in verse two should be translated land. That word can be either or. That's why you'll have some people that, are, that think God flooded the, the earth and some people think God flooded the land, right? That's where that debate comes from, is around that word. Which is it? <laughs> yeah, that's why we get to have debates, okay? Uh, that's, why, that's why there's ambiguity. But his point is, the word in verse 2, the earth... It should be the land was without form and void. Okay, now he says the word formless or without form and void should be rendered deserted and empty like a wilderness. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, if you've got them, and turn to Jeremiah 4, 23 to 26. Jeremiah 4, 23 to 26. Um, the book of Jeremiah, you know what it's about? Anybody? What's going on in the book of Jeremiah? 
Judah's going to be judged for their disobedience, and um, how are they going to be judged? Yeah, they're going to be taken out of the land. We're, we're looking at that right now in our small groups. Um, we're studying through the minor prophets, and part of the reason for that was just to get a, an understanding of the history of Israel, for one, and to read through some of these minor prophets we skip over. But most of what they're concerned with are these big, this big kind of catastrophic event that's right in the middle of Jewish history, which is, first, the captivity uh, by the Assyrians of the northern kingdom in 722. They take them out of the land, and then the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah, taking them out of the land by the Babylonians. And so, largely what Jeremiah is prophesying about is that you're going to be judged, you're going to be taken out of the land, and does anybody remember the, re- the predominant reasons why? Idolatry, Idolatry is a, one big, huge tent pole of it, and then there's something to do with the land. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, they didn't, and, and the way Jeremiah phrases it is they didn't let this land rest. Like, they're supposed to let the land rest, and they didn't, they didn't do that. And so these are two big themes that are running um, through the book of Jeremiah. And he says here in verse 23, uh, Jeremiah is, is prophesying here, and he says, um, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, what is he talking about there in that passage? He's not looking back to creation. It sounds like what it, didn't it? I mean, you just read the creation account. It sounds here like he's looking back to creation, but he's not. What is he looking at? Destruction. Destruction. Their cities are ruined. Their cities were already there, and, he, and they're in ruin, and they're laying in rubble before the fierce anger of the Lord, right? What does formless and void mean there? Without form and void. They're, they're, they're uninhabitable, Right? There, it's a wasteland, right? Nobody can, can live there. Now, we know part of the reason for that is because the Lord destroyed it, and the other part of the reason is because, well, the Israelites were terrible in the way that they treated the land that the Lord had given to them. He didn't let it rest. And so they're kicked out of the land. They're removed from the promised land, and well, it's prophesied that they're going to be, and that it's destroyed before him, and it's well, there's the same words, without form and void. Jeremiah is, is intentionally going back to creation and using the creation language. And he's doing it on purpose. And the reason, because he's trying to tell them it's a decreated effort, right? God is bringing decreation to you, essentially. He's uncreating what he created. Um, similar thing we get in the flood in Genesis 6. Remember, there's the separation. He separates the waters above and the waters below. And in the flood, we get the waters come back together. Right? It's, it, the, the picture in your mind when you hear that, when you read it, is that there's this decreation effort that's going on by the Lord. He's removing what he had done, the grace of God by creating and then, and then his, his, ju- his judgment by destroying. Zephaniah did the same thing Sunday, but it was in reverse order. Right. Uh, prophesying the destruction of everything, man, man first, 
than beast right. and fish and birds and stuff. Right. Yeah. The, um, it's so often, and if you look for it, you'll see that in the themes running through Scripture, the biblical authors are are much more. This is a an overstatement, an understatement. Much more in tune to the biblical text than we are, and the story that's happening from the very beginning than we are, and they're using some of these themes on purpose. And Jeremiah is doing no different. He's calling back to the created order, and he's bringing to mind. Remember what God did in creation. Salheimer's point is what Jer- what Jeremiah is reminding them of is that God had prepared the land in creation, and in in the exile to Babylon, He is decreating the land, if you will. Um, okay. So he says, without form and void, that should really, uh, really be deserted and empty. And one of, the big, one of the big things that should be noted here that's kind of a feather in his cap, and it is true, is that, that the terms formless and void are really, they're largely a holdover from the first Greek translation. William Tyndale, when he translated the, the Bible into English, he initially gave those words without form. It wasn't, that's not exactly what he used, but something like that, and void. And he got that from the Greek translation, which really borrowed that from Greek mythology, that everything was kind of this blobbed mass of nothing, and God sort of kind of, the gods sort of massaged it over time, and eventually it became the presented world order that we see around us now. But, so what Salhammer's point is, is that that's what that's a holdover from, is the Greek conceptions of creation. And so it really shouldn't be that way. In fact, if we were looking at it for what it really is, it probably should mean something like what the rest of the Bible indicates that that phrase means, which is um, that it's deserted and empty. It's more like a wilderness, unsuitable for humanity to live in. That's the point. It's not suitable for humanity to live in. And what God's doing now is he's preparing this created order specifically for mankind to live in. Does that make sense? Um, why does that not make sense to you with the God you know? Take me there. Passage. Uh, Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Now, of course, if that means that his formation of it, not forming it uh, void, but formed it inhabited, means what I think you're saying that that means, then there was no sixth day of mankind's creation. Is that right? (laughs) yes but I think I think anybody would agree with that and they would say yeah it takes him a whole one chapter to do that
So uh, let's, um, let me dial back here. Let's step, step, take one step back. Sailhammer saying, effectively, it was just that not suitable for humanity to live in the sense of what we're going to see, sunrise, sunsets, fruit trees, beasts of the field, uh, birds of the air, those kinds of things. But as you well know, um, an un- unkempt, untamed wilderness is still an ordered creation, right? It doesn't have to be a finely manicured garden to be an ordered creation. Does that make sense? Yes? Following and tracking with what I'm saying? Okay. So the point, I don't think what Isaiah is saying is that on day one, as soon as God spoke, mankind was there. I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying. What God has done here in Genesis chapter 1, or what we're going to see God doing in Genesis chapter 1, is not only creating the earth to be inhabitable for humanity, but he's also setting up their week and why they should observe a Sabbath. I mean, if you think where this story is headed, that's one of the reasons why I, don't, why I personally don't really like the traditional old earth position of the long ages of uh, the God is because this chapter one is fundamental for the, the Jew to observe a work week and to take off on, on, Saturday, on uh, Saturday. So, uh, so I, I, I don't think what Isaiah is pointing to there is that mankind wasn't really created on the sixth day. So, he, we would still be back in the same place we are if that's not what Isaiah means. Does that, that make sense? Am I making sense here? You tracking with me? To mean what, what I think you're indicating Isaiah to mean, that he didn't create it empty, so when he created it, boom, it was filled with mankind and everything. Oh, what did you intend to say? Yeah. Yeah, it, but I, I don't think that that's entirely different than what Sailhammer's saying. Sailhammer's saying, uh, majestic. Yeah, with, with the way he takes the, the thing, uh, this is to say, uh, well, well, let's look at, um, let's look at the, the, uh, what, the Everglades. Look at the Everglades in Florida. Is that created in orderly? Yeah, it's created in orderly. Is it habitable? Like, would you, would you want to set down roots there? <laughs> you couldn't. But if you could, no, you wouldn't want to. That's not, it's not habitable for humanity. And so maybe in a little bit stronger degree than the Everglades, um, that's what Sailhammer means. He's saying the stars are there. The sun is there. He's going to say the sun is there. The moon is there from the, first, from the word go. In the beginning, God created Boom, there it is. That word that he uses incidentally in verse 1, created, um, doesn't appear again. That, that indicates most of the time, again, not a, precise, not a super precise language, that indicates most of the time created out of nothing. And that's what we have here in verse 1. We don't see that word again until verse 21, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit. The rest of the things is really mean, meaning to kind of put in order, arrange, put in its place. All right, 
So just keep that in your, in your mind. Does that make sense, Bob? I'm, I'm trying to, to make sense of you. Okay, um, so then we get to verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5, where uh, we see the let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning um, on the first day. Now, Salehammer does point out one thing that we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, on the first day, it really can be translated one day, that he, he said, let there be light one day, okay? But what, what Salehammer's point is, is that God doesn't bring light into existence. That happened in verse 1. Uh, but he decrees for the sun to rise. So that phrase there, let there be light, is not quite as cut and dry as it would first appear. Look at Nehemiah. Let me get the page number. Nehemiah uh, there, uh, 8, 3. And somebody read that when you've got it. Eight three. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon, and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people paid close attention to the book of. Am I reading the right thing? You're right. Just verse three. Okay. Uh, all the people paid close attention to the book of the law. Here, the word is referring to early morning. So we have it here as early morning, um, and in. Uh, Genesis 1, we have light, would imply that light came into existence. Salehammer's point is, no, it, it did, it's not that it came into existence. He says, let there be early morning. Essentially the same way Nehemiah translates it in, in Nehemiah 8.3. Um, and so his point is, what God is doing here is assigning a, uh, the timeliness of the earth, that light is already there, there's already some form of, of light in what God is doing. Perhaps you might think of it as like setting the rotation of the earth or, some, or something of that nature, that there's a, that there's a, a, a dawn and a sunset and that, that kind of a thing, uh, which we'll see a little bit later too. Then we get to uh, 1, 6 to 8. And uh, it says, uh, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let, let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning on the second day. Now here he's saying, look, we're looking at um, the area over the, the, the land, the specific land that he's shaping and crafting for humanity to dwell. And he says that God prepared the sky with clouds to provide rain for the land, that that's what he's doing. He's setting up the land to receive rain so that it would produce, ultimately produce vegetation. The rain would prepare the land to produce vegetation on the next day. And so he's, um, he's really essentially the way he kind of depicts it, especially in his book, is that there's sort of this uh, foggy marshland uh, kind of that would be eventually the promised land. And what God is doing is pulling back the clouds and putting them in the sky, letting it rain over the land so that it can receive, it can produce vegetation, things like that. Say again? Yeah, his, yes, his, his focus from, he says the focus from one, two and following is specifically targeted at the promised land, the 
The rest of the earth, it happened in Genesis 1-1. It's there. Had vegetation. He would say had vegetation. And he would say even for that matter, um, dinosaurs, prehistory, all of that is back there. And at some point fell out of existence and now he's shaping the land itself. Before the fall. Yep. That would be the same in this view and what we saw a couple weeks ago, the old earth view. In that what their point is, is to say in the punishment in Genesis 3 is in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Meaning that mankind was set apart as different, that their death was not touching him. But he could pluck an apple and the apple would no longer grow and be alive, right? Or he could pluck a fruit of some sort, and it would be effectively dead off the vine. Same would be true of animals and other living things, fish of the sea and things like that, whereas that did not apply to mankind until he ate and was cursed. That's the point of both the old earth view and this view. Say again? Uh, stopping, ceasing to live. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, a spiritual, spiritual and physical death, I think both, they would say both were true. A, a physical and spiritual death were both true at the moment Adam took up the fruit. Uh, sp- spiritual death, yeah. Sure, yeah, and physical death as well, yeah. Um, don't shoot the messenger, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's good. Um, so then in 9 to 13, uh, he says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout veg- vegetation, plants yielding seed, Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is, is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, uh, and he obviously, the land brought forth vegetation, uh, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit which, uh, in which is their seed, and each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning on the third day. Uh, so verses 9 to 13, he would say, God commanded the, pl- the land to be filled with plants and fruit trees and things like that. Um, and on this day, God caused the land, which had previously been empty of vegetation, to bring forth vegetation so that it would no longer be a wilderness. So now it's beginning to take on characteristics of habitable land for humanity. He's crafting it and shaping it into what would eventually be the, the promised land for the Jews to dwell in, is essentially the point. Questions? Verse 10 says God called the dry land earth. Yep. So, how does that fit if we're kind of substituting um, There is a word for dry land, which he uses there, and then you get to that word earth again, which would be land. <laughs> yeah. Just land, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I could be wrong about this. If I, again, it's, it's probably been a couple years since I've read his book, but um, I think he goes with after 
verse 1 of Genesis, everything else should, every time that word appears, should be interpreted land. Um, at least in chapter 1, and I think that's true of chapter 2 as well. Yes, definitely true of chapter 2. Um, okay. So, uh, starting verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night um, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to uh, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Now, in 14 to 19, he says, God is appointing the lights to their assigned duties. The word made uh, can carry the meaning of putting into effect something that's already there. And, and his, his point is that's significant, that he doesn't say created like he does in verse 1, he says, he says made, which kind of means really to put into order that he's assigning each their, their given place. Um, I, I, think, cause I think the natural question would then be, so why, why, why this? Like, why is he doing this? Why did he say, okay, light in, on the first day, and then now, later, here's the sun, moon, and stars, and all of those kinds of things? And what Sailhammer's arguing is that there's a structure to the first three days and the second three days. If you look at it, I've got a quote down here from him that I think is, is helpful to understand where he's headed. Uh, Having prepared in consecutive order the skies, the seas, and the land on the first three days, God on the last three days proclaimed the purpose for those things which were to fill the skies, the seas, and the land. God waited, therefore, until the fourth day to make known his plan for the signs that were to fill the skies. That make sense? So the structure would be he creates the things and then four days four through six he fills them. Created, then filled. And it does follow that that pattern, if you will. Questions about that? I know for most of you you're probably going, ah. <laughs> We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, uh, so verses 20 to 23. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created, there's the word again that we come back to from verse 1. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning on the fifth day. Now, Sailhammer here says uh, that basically God populates the land with every, every creature. So we saw the seas were filled. He populates the land with every creature now. And then he says which is, I got a little asterisk here because I want to talk about this for a second. He says verse 21 is written to remind the reader that God created every creature. And it calls back to verse 1. Because you remember, if his his argument, his premise is verse 1 is God created the heavens and the earth. Because that word, bara, 
Well, then if you get to the word bara somewhere else, that word created, well, that doesn't mean out of nothing because that already happened, right? That's what his, his point is. Well, then he gets to the word in verse 21, and what, what is he going to do with that? It's, it's there. There's the word created. So what is he going to do with that? And he goes, well, I think what that's doing is calling back to verse 1. I don't think so. I don't think that's a really good argument. I, I don't like that um, at all. And when I see that, I go, okay, let's, why don't we let's be consistent here? One of the things that I stumbled across the other day, and this was not even in connection to preparing for tonight or anything like that. I, I, honestly, I think one of my friends posted it on Facebook. And it was um, an, uh, an article from um, a secular publication, and I can't even remember what it was, but it was a news article about uh, secular scientists that have, that have uh, kind of noticed some issues with Darwinian evolution. Go figure. And this is a, a, secular, a secular news article. So this is not, I mean, it's just saying that there's not a vested interest here at all, okay? So they're, they're um, talking about this scientist who said, look, it seems that there's overwhelming evidence that all of the creatures, all of the animals that we know of today, all came into existence at the same time. <laughs> That's what he says. And so we're going to have to deal with that. That was his point, was, look, as, as people who believe in um, the, the kind of evolution that would be, you know, uh, materialistic evolution, just there it goes, it, it all evolves together, that we're going to have to deal with that, that all the creatures that we see now seem to all have come, of, come about at the same time. And so I think even within Salehammer's argument, he could easily say that God is creating a, not only a habitable land for man to dwell in, but he's creating habitable creatures for him to dwell with. Right? That even if you were to hold Salehammer's argument that, he, that we couldn't live with the T-Rex, right? That the T-Rex wasn't suitable for mankind to live with, you know? <laughs> and that, you know, maybe, and that, that, uh, that here he's, he's creating creatures out of whole cloth that man can dwell with. But, um, so I don't, I don't really like that argument. I, I, didn't, I, th- I thought that was sort of sketchy uh, from my perspective anyway. So then it, we get, does anybody have questions about that? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No. So he, he says no on that. And, this is, and, that, and that's part of the reason why I don't like, why, why I didn't like what he did with verse 21 when he's interpreting verse 21 is because he says mankind comes about late and comes about here with Adam and Eve. And his point, he, he says the reason why we know that is because, first of all, the genealogies in, in which we're going to talk about in just a second, uh, that the genealogies in Genesis only go back to Adam and that Eve is called the mother, the mother of all mankind. And, but I, I think the better argument is, well, look at verse 27. So God created man in his image. And there's that word bara again, which is uh, created out of, in this case, he created, a, there was not an existing mankind. He created him out of the dust of the ground. Um, so, um, his, uh, his, his, I, I think that's why it's, it's particularly sketchy on that interpretation of verse 21. I think it's, it's much 
easier to just say that there's inhabitable creatures that he's creating to live with mankind for the first time that haven't been in existence before. Any other questions like that? Good question. Yeah, so he's saying in one one everything came into existence. That would be the prehistoric history that scientists are now, or you know, geologists are now uncovering and scraping up the dirt and finding these things in the dirt. That would be stuff that would be have been created long ago, and it existed and it sat there for only the Lord knows how long. Um, but could have been me. Yeah, now we're not there yet, so hold on. Uh, <laughs> all right, and God said, uh, and God said, let the uh, here we go, let the land bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, uh, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, of the field of the of the earth of the land according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's, let's pause right there. Um, so what he's saying is that God populated the ground or the land that the man and woman were to dwell in um, that he had made dry on the third day with living creatures. That's what he's doing. He's assembling them together in the land here. Um, so he's bringing them, uh, which was a previously a, a kind of a barren wasteland, uninhabitable for mankind. He's now making it habitable, including uh, mankind that should dwell there. Canaan. That's right. That's right. So is this again putting into effect order? Is this again putting into? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he's he would be ordering the animals there on the land. Yes, yes, yes. He's putting them. He's giving them their mission. You cow, go live in that land. Uh, and, they, and they do. One, one question at a time. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Timothy. Only the promised land is the focus. Yes. Everywhere else there are creatures. Everywhere else there... He, well... Uh, he doesn't really take a position on that. He would say they could either have been exi- extinct or if it's a young earth, they could be there, whatever. He, he, his point is the Bible does not talk about it at all. It's not even a, a thing that's discussed. Yeah. Yeah. You said? Uh, new creatures. New creatures. Um, well, no, no, in, in the, in the On the land? No, he, his point is that the word bara, not being there, he made, he appointed, he put into effect creatures that were already there in, uh, in the world at the time to live in the land. Right. Some of them may have died and gone extinct. Let's say a T-Rex may have died and gone extinct. Uh, he, uh, this one may have been there uh, in the land. He uh, have already been there in Russia. He said, you cow that's in Russia, take off. You head for the promised land. Uh, take, a, take a wife with you. Uh, you go. <laughs> just, just. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then I, I mentioned this earlier. Adam and Eve, here we get to the, the creation of mankind. Here's that word bara again in, in verse 27. So God created man in his, own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Uh, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you uh, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree uh, with seed in its fruit. You shall have, have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Um, So he says Adam and Eve are the first humans because no genealogies. If you didn't get that earlier in Genesis, go back before Adam. And Eve is referred to as the mother of all living, um, all things living, mother of all the living. I would say uh, it's very simple. He says created right there. And um, the word Adam means man. So here's a person that has both their name and their function. It'd be like, um, I guess the last name Smith, uh, you know, or Carpenter uh, is, uh, is his name and his, his function. Now, I realize that, that most of that is, is pretty strange. It's pretty out there. You've probably never heard that position before. I get that. And I would be sensitive to that and say, yeah, that would be one thing that I would say, uh, I need to probably see this at some point over the course of history. Um, The reason that I present it to you is um, not because I'm trying to persuade you or that I want you to take it. Uh, It's not necessarily even the position that I take, but just that it's an example of someone that's looking at the text itself and saying, is that what this means? Here's the way it's been translated through the rest of Scripture what if we translated it that same way here? It would maybe change the way we're thinking about the function of chapter 1. There's some very strong points that John Salmer makes, and there's a reason, another reason why I wanted to bring it up. He, uh, Salehammer is very good at the story of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He specializes in that. He's really good, too, at the story that Scripture is, is painting and is presenting. And the arguments that he makes is is largely that the whole Old Testament narrative is primarily centered around this area, the promised land. If you notice, if you'll turn to chapter 3 in Genesis, I want to show you something um, that you'll you'll see that aspects of this this narrative kind of pick up steam and, and sort of maybe change the way you think about chapters 1 to 11. I say here one of the strengths is that the boundaries of the promised land for Adam and Eve that are there in 2, 10 to 14 seem to be very similar or appear to be the same boundaries as the promised land in general. You see that in Genesis 15, uh, 18. So if you look at chapter 3 and you start in when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the land in verse 22, then God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove them out, uh, he drove out the man and at the where? East of the garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the the way to the tree of life. Now the gracious move by God who says, I have given him a sustainable, habitable land 
that in his sinful state would perpetuate his life in that sinful state forever. So lest he uh, live off this tree in that way, let's send him out and prevent him from coming back. He sends him east. And that's significant because when the, when the Israelites are taken to Babylon, they are also sent east. Now, Babylon is, plays a tremendous role in the Old Testament narrative, a huge role in the Old Testament narrative. The word for Babylon is Babel. You've heard the word Babel somewhere else in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. It's the same word. Um, the, the point that's being made, it seems, in the Old Testament narrative is that this place that they're building this big structure is the epitome of sinful humanity. And when you see Babylon appear later on, it too is the epitome of sinful humanity. It's east of the garden. It's east of the land of promise. And it is where the children of Israel, the the Jews, are banished when they have sinned against God. They are taken east to Babel. Now, John brings Babel back in Revelation, doesn't he? The city of man, the city of sin, the epitome of worship of the Antichrist. They're picking up on something that's very significant. And I think that's one of the stronger points that Salehammer is making is that this land plays into the bigger narrative of Scripture. That Genesis 1 and 2 isn't just sitting there to, to tell you God created the world out of nothing, and so there you have it. This is the real God that did that. But the Genesis 1 and 2 are sitting there to say God crafted this land for you. And when you were there, in Adam and Eve, what did you do? You sinned against God. And where did he take you? He took you east and he banished you to Babel. Don't do it again. Because they're getting ready, right? To go back into the promised land. And the, the assumption that we make is that Moses had crafted these five books preceding their entry into the land, right before they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy being the last, the last warning He crafted these books, and he's telling them, you're about to go into the land. Don't do it again. But then Joshua tells them, but you will. (laughs) And they do, right? Uh, Yeah. So does does that make sense? I think that's something very strong that that Salheimer's pointing to. I don't think you necessarily have to take up his entire position in order to believe that, but but I do think that's, that's one of the stronger points of it. Um, so I think it does make be- better sense of Genesis 1 and 2 with the rest of the Pentateuch. Um, but the downsides of it, I think, are that there's, as you've probably noticed, that there's many, many translation adjustments that are involved. And that always makes people nervous. And to be honest with you, as a pastor, I think it should. When people come to you and start saying, like, well, you, well you've translated it all wrong. Here's the way you should have translated it. And your natural response, I think, should be, well, for the last 600 years, nobody's offered a different translation than the one I've got, really. I mean, minor adjustments here and there, but nothing like you're talking about. And I think we should be sensitive to that. And so that sort of, I think, is a, is a big downside to, to his argument. That's, um, that's the exact thing I was thinking about with this. 
Yeah. You know, for thousands of years or however, for, for, we've had the Old Testament. Right, right. Nobody ever thought of this right. before until now. Yeah. So you're kind of going, yeah. why didn't somebody else come up with this? Uh, you know, and, and, and um, I would say, again, I, I would say, yeah, there should be a bell going off in your head that kind of says, wait a minute. Um, you know, I don't know how comfortable I am with, with all these alternative translations. I mean, it's you, interesting. Yeah, and you do require, you should require of somebody that's saying, this is the view to hold. You should require of them, show me where else these exact words are translated this way. Why would, why would the text justify that translation? And I think, in fairness to John Salhammer in his book, he does a pretty good job of that showing you why these words have been translated this way in other texts and why they should just as well be translated that way here. And we don't translate them that way. For what reason? Well, because it's always been that way, you know? And he, he, he sort of, one of the other things that I think is weak that I didn't list here is that he does say, hey, there's been plenty of people that have believed similar things like this. And I can think of a couple that have not quite what he's saying, but, but reasonably close. But he doesn't go out and enumerate who those were. And I think he should in, in his book if he's proposing this kind of thing. I really think he should. Um, the, the, last, the other weakness I think is it, we've, we already talked about is that the word bara, the created, in 21 and 27 uh, seems to read create most naturally, that he, that he created. And so that would be a, a weakness. I do think an, another strong thing about it is potentially... It, could, it does make a, an argument for how you could see the earth being older as in terms of like we, we do see a, a perceived age, but, but it also being 24-hour days, which seems to read most naturally later on. So I think there, to his credit, there is that. You know, here, here's the, the deal. Every last one of the views that we've looked at, they all have some issue that we just don't know. Um, we talked about with the young earth creation position it's hard when you, when you think about the, the, the stars and the, the, the definite appearance of age that's out there. Um, you, know, you talk about the stars being so far away, and a lot of people say, well, he created it with age, like rings, may, rings in the trees in the Garden of, of Eden. But the problem is we, we don't know about the rings in the trees of the Garden of Eden. We don't have one that we can cut open to see it, were there really rings there. Uh, we do know about the distance of stars and the distance light has to travel. And so it would, it, with the young earth position, that's one obstacle to overcome is to think about how, how do I reconcile? It, it would seem as though God is, is with, with all the appearance of age that's around us, really not, I mean, deceiving. That's the word a lot of old earthers use for, to a young earth position is saying, well, it would seem like deception. Everything looks old. Everything has the appearance of old. I might really believe that every single scientist out there is just wrong. They're all, they're all, they're, putting together, concocting a plan to kind of like pull, pull one over on us. Um, so the young earth position has that to deal with. You have that obstacle to overcome. And if you take that position, it's, it's one that you should be ready to have an answer for, right? Uh, the old earth position has some significant issues as well. Um, namely, the days appear to be 24-hour days. Uh, that's the, I think, most, reads most naturally. The creation account does often read most naturally as a, as a, a young earth, uh, to a young earth position. And so you have that to account for. 
as the reason for why you would have to translate the words that you do. And I think Sailhammer's views have, have weaknesses to them as well. Uh, the point is that we have to look seriously at the text and we have to answer for what does it really say? Is that, is that what it's saying right here? Let's look at the actual words that are used in the scriptures. Let's take them seriously and let's ask what do those exactly mean? In some cases, it's going to be harder than others. And I think history bears out where it's been really easy, where the Bible is abundantly clear. And there's some areas where we have some argument. I think. Any questions before we close? Sure. Uh, there are great arguments to be had, especially in terms of, uh, well, science for one. Uh, there's plenty of, of scientists, secular scientists, that are not necessarily even taking up the Christian position that are abandoning materialism as a whole and saying they're just, this had, can't have come from nothing. I mean, come from, just evolved, in other words. It can't have done that. And um, those are good books to read. Darwin's House of Cards, I think, is is one of them that's more recently come out. It's a a really good um, critique on Darwinian evolution and and that position. And those conversations really do need to be had. Um, And we we really do need to think deeply about it. But at the same time, we have to kind of go, okay, I may have my position pretty solid, but... um, I do have to kind of give a little bit of grace to people that are trying to read this and take it seriously and, and also kind of look at, you know, what's been revealed to us or what we, what we seem to conclude from looking at the rest of the world, too. Right. Sure, yeah. Sure, yeah. And those things need to be brought to light. That's, that's true. Yeah. So, Michael, if you don't know Hebrew... Are you depending on your translation? Uh, Dave, uh, Barah. Uh. Yeah. Are I, we doing that? Is yeah, that what we have to do? Yeah. I, I, uh, I said this a while back, and, and I think it's true, is that what you have in front of you is not a translation of the inspired Word of God. You have the inspired Word of God. Um, and the translations that we have are good, and you should trust them. And you should lean on them, and you should read them, and you should know them, and you should take your interpretation of Scripture from them. You should also balance that interpretation off your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. You should balance that interpretation off the course of Christian history before you. You should not just trust your own interpretation of the text, but you should 
listen to the interpretation of Christians that have come before you. And um, so I think it's good to read people that are believers that are interacting with this same text. But at the end of the day, where they talk about areas that have been widely debated, you, you, may, you may be persuaded by their arguments, but they still remain in this open hand that you kind of say, eh, he, may, he makes a good argument, but I'm not sure. Right? Here's what I do know. God created the world out of nothing. He created mankind in his image. Uh, Adam and Eve were the first. They fell. And they sinned against God. Right? There's those, those things that we know for sure that's buttoned up. You know, um, some of these others, they're harder. And I, I, all I wanted to do was just expose why they're difficult and why, why people have been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Yeah, uh, John Salehammer is a, a godly individual. He's a Christian. He loves the Bible. He's an inerrantist. Uh, he's, he's, he's a Christian. He is interacting with this text, and he's questioning um, the common way that some of these words have been translated, and it leads him to different conclusions. None of the conclusions that it leads him to are um, non-Christian, right? They don't determine his salvation. They're uh, Legitimate questions. One of the things I wanted to draw your attention to, we don't have time to read it, but is this, this last page that I've included. Um, I don't want you to walk away thinking that that's a translation of the text. That's not John Salehammer's translation. That is Salehammer's interpretive translation. In other words, he's saying, based on the words, the way I think the words should be translated, this would be the meaning that you would walk away with. Okay? Uh, so it's almost like a commentary of chapter one. You can read it for yourself, and you can see that kind of the point that he's, he's, he thinks that the text is driving towards. Um, so I don't want you to walk away thinking, I just gave you a new translation of the Bible because that's not what I gave you. Uh, that's an interpretive translation. So, Yeah, exactly. So, um, so anyway, the next time we come together, uh, you understand next week I'm on vacation. We're not having adult Bible study that night because, well, I won't be here. The week after that is business meeting, and then the week after that we'll, we'll resume. Let's pray, and then we'll get started, or we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time to just gather together to think deeply about your word. I thank you for um, John Selhammer, even as, um, as different as his position may be, or as much as I may disagree with some of the things that he said. Um, thank you that, uh, that he was faithful to the end, uh, that he is a, a saint who's with you, who is... Um, and who has a, a living legacy of sharing your gospel with, with people, um, discipling people, and leading them to Christ, and leading them to maturity in Christ. Um, we're thankful for him and the testimony that, that he has. He has given, he has left behind. Um, we're, we're grateful for a place that we can gather together and read your word and study it and think about it. Um, question things and, and answer things. And, and we're grateful for that opportunity that so many around the world do not have, uh, but we do. You've given that to us and we're grateful for it. 
Um, I pray, Lord, that as we go, uh, you allow us to be further intrigued by your word, that we could dive into it wholeheartedly, not just for academic purposes, but for um, to engage our heart's affections in the Christ of the scriptures and to truly turn our attention to him and worship him with everything that we have, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.